This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming, streaming at kpfk.org. We're talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, should Ivanka be indicted? She's connected pretty directly to events at the center of the Russiagate investigations. We'll have a report from our chief Ivanka correspondent, Amy Willens. Also, Katha Pollitt responds to the Russiagate skeptics among us, our friends on the, on the left who say that so far nothing proves that Trump and Putin colluded in the election campaign. But first, Trump versus Amazon. Harold Meyerson will comment. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, Trump tweeted today his criticisms of Amazon. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor at the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So what was it that Trump had to say about Amazon and why he doesn't like Amazon? Well, uh, there was a... uh, uh, pre-8 a.m. tweet uh, today from Trump, which I'll, I'll, I'll just read it. Please. It says, I have stated my concerns with Amazon long before the election. Unlike others, they pay little or no taxes to state and local governments, use our postal service as their delivery boy, causing tremendous loss to the U.S., and are putting many thousands of retailers out of business. You know, I sort of agree with most of that, actually. I, I'm well, embarrassed. They putting, they have put, <laughs> yes, yes, this is the stop clock theory. Uh, uh, they have uh, certainly put a hell of a lot of bookstores and, and other, uh, uh, other business, small businesses out of business. Of course, you know, I mean, so is Walmart, about yeah. which Trump yes. has, said, has said nothing since uh, the uh, uh, Sam Walton's kids are reliable mega contributors to the Republican Party. But, you know, so a little double standard there. Uh, but... But the main but here <laughs> is um, to, to criticize Amazon or anyone for paying little or no taxes. Uh, for, for Don- I mean, who the hell is Donald Trump <laughs> to complain about not paying taxes? I, I mean, see you what know, you we, mean. We have, no, we have no idea uh, about his own tax payments since uh, uniquely among presidential candidates of recent decades, he never released his tax returns, and he's a guy who once said that not paying taxes, quote, makes me smart. Uh-huh. Um, so by that standard, uh, Jeff Bezos may well be uh, even smarter than, than Donald Trump, though I suspect that's a corporate issue with Bezos, not, a, not an individual uh, issue. And since the guy's worth $100 billion bucks anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, the animus here is, is, is clearly... Uh, a function in some, uh, in a lot of ways, of the fact that Bezos owns the Washington Post, which has not uh, been exactly uh, a lapdog for what uh, Trump and his minions have been doing. Uh, this is true. I just want to pause for a minute on Jeff Bezos has a hundred billion dollars, or is it a hundred thirty billion? Maybe it went down this morning. Uh, I was just thinking, like, well, what if he gave, like, $100 million to the American prospect every year? How many years would it take until he ran out of money? I think it would be, like, a 1,000 years, if I yes, got the it zeros. Would be, it would be a 1,000 years. Yeah, he's, he's, he's seriously well-fixed. Uh, 
there's, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, uh, we'll just contemplate that. Or, or he could split it between KPFK and the American Prospect, and, and we'd all be in business for the next thousand years. We, we, we would, <laughs> though, though not you and me personally. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, 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 no, that, that would, that would uh, certainly be... Uh, Certainly, be true. Yes, that is, he, he, you know, he, this is not a guy who is uh, just scraping along. Uh, but uh, uh, moving right along, you have a big piece at the American Prospect uh, where you argue uh, that although Republicans are tr- have been trying to kill unions, especially at the Supreme Court in the last year or two. Um, you say it's really become too late for them to succeed at this. What What do you mean? Well, I mean, I fully anticipate that the five Republican justices on the court are going to rule for the plaintiff in the uh, Janus versus AFSCME case, uh, which would basically have the effect of decimating America's largest unions, the public uh, employee unions, the two teacher unions, AFSCME, SEIU. Um, and, and that does not augur well. And, and labor law generally in the private sector is, is, is pretty dysfunctional. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, how do we explain the fact that uh, uh, teachers in West Virginia, not exactly at this point a union-friendly state, just compelled uh, the uh, state government to give them and every other public employee in West Virginia a 5% raise? Um, how do we explain the fact that in Oklahoma, where teachers are... Uh, basically going the same route that uh, West Virginia teachers did. Uh, they have compelled perhaps the nation's most conservative legislature, and that's saying something, um, uh, one house at least, to, to grant them a, a, a kindred raise. This is in a state with, you know, neither states have very, very much in the way of union members. They're both uh, <clears throat> right to work. Um, uh, but, you know, the, 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 there are some interesting points about this that, that I think, uh, reflect uh, a changing climate on unions, which is why I'm not entirely pessimistic, as I probably would have been before the West Virginia uh, strike. First of all, public sentiment on unions, which really hit, hit bottom uh, uh, shortly after the, uh, the great crash of 2008, uh, particularly when uh, there the were bailouts to General Motors and Chrysler, and there was all these stories about auto workers being highly paid, which is largely nonsense. Uh, uh, at that point, unions' uh, approval rating at, at Gallup uh, was was under 50% for the first time ever. Uh, today, that figure has risen to either 60% in Gallup or 61% in Pew, hmm. uh, the two en- entities that poll on this. Among millennials, and, 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 and Pew broke it down by age, among millennials, uh, uh, the rate, of, the approval rating for unions is a kind of stratospheric seventy-six percent. Seventy-six percent. How 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 do you uh, explain this, young people? Uh, how could they know anything about unions? They've grown up in a world without unions. That's true. Uh, so what are, what are, what are we seeing here? And I, I think we're seeing uh, some of what. Uh, possibly we saw in the 1930s, which is that a generation that has come of age in a time when the economy clearly isn't working for them mm. are reaching out uh, to, to any kind of entity, and the one kind of entity that does this is a union, uh, <clears throat> that could uh, you know, create a more stable 
work life for them, and that uh, if they've studied American history at all, they may have some sense that when unions were strong, there actually was an American middle class that was doing, you know, reasonably well. Um, conversely, or not conversely, correspondingly, I got to watch my adverbs. Here. Yeah. Cor- cor- correspondingly, um, uh, some work by the Center for Economic Policy Research shows that. Um, of the Americans who joined unions in the last year, again, 76% were under 35. So we're seeing the 76% figure come up repeatedly. So what are are we seeing here? What are we seeing? Um, I I, I think we are looking at a generation that uh, is is really willing to, you know, understand, they, they understand the need to change the way the economy is working. And I think it's part and parcel of the, the same phenomenon that saw millennials uh, backing uh, Bernie Sanders uh, in, in, in high numbers. I think, I think what we have here, um, to oversimplify, hopefully not too much, is a pretty left generation. Uh, I think in, in economic issues, the leftmost generation we've seen perhaps since the 1930s. Uh, so that's one thing. That's one thing. Now, that still doesn't account for the fact that you have all of this mass mobilization of teachers in, uh, in, in, in states like West Virginia and Oklahoma, where there are actually relatively few union members of any unions, including the teachers. Yeah, I have but to say, the big, question, yeah. the big question about West Virginia is uh, how, how did they manage to win? It's still astounding. Well, uh, there's a, uh, a device they use, which has received a lot of justifiable criticism lately, but we shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, overlook the fact that there was this Facebook page in, uh, in, in West Virginia that a rank-and-file teacher set up that almost every one of the 20,000 teachers in the state signed on to of the strike participation and preparing for a strike in Oklahoma. Again, a rank-and-file teacher has set up a Facebook page which 55,000 teachers have uh, uh, have signed on to. That, that's, mm. again, almost all the teachers in the state. Now, both of these are states where teachers are colossally underpaid. Uh, West Virginia ranks 48th among the states, uh, or did before they got their raise. Oklahoma, which is not the poorest state in the country, ranks 50th. Uh, mm. uh, but uh, uh, using the Facebook page as a vehicle for mobilizing support, which you know, both supplements what the unions themselves can do and in many ways goes well beyond what these relatively small unions in those states can do. Um, they got mass participation in West Virginia. Uh, all the schools in the state closed down for lack of having any teachers for nine days. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they were able to, uh, uh, therefore, persuade the legislature uh, to, uh, to give them, uh, give them this, this uh, raise. They also had a lot of public support. Uh, and did the uh, uh, did the did the state try to bring in a, a scab teachers? Well, that's that that's the point. Well, what what I'm seeing, and and you look at who's unionizing. One of the more interesting uh, facts about unionization is, in recent years, a higher and higher percentage of union workers are either professionals or technical workers. Uh, in the mid, you know, ten years ago, it was about thirty three, thirty four percent. Uh, and in the last decade, that's risen to 42%. Now, that's both good news and bad news for unions. That means, on the one hand, yeah, they're able to organize some, you know, uh, uh, a, a bunch of folks. Uh, it also means they're not able to organize another bunch of folks. What it, what it, what it means 
is they're able to organize workers who really can't readily be replaced by their employers, yeah. like all the teachers in the state, <laughs> yes. like graduate students, like college professors, like the young journalists, uh, the young reporters who have all joined unions this year at digital media outlets. Uh, these are not workers who can easily be replaced. But, you know, uh, if you're a fast food worker, um, they can drop you uh, like a, you know, um, a hot... Uh, a <laughs> hot French fry. Hot fries. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, get, get someone to replace you uh, the next day. And so uh, this is, I think, a key factor in who's unionizing and uh, who, who isn't. And it's reflected... That's reflected in those uh, statistics that I gave you. So is West Virginia some kind of a model for what, how, how unions could uh, recover some ground, especially after when the Supreme Court is likely to uh, go after uh, public employee unions in the next few months? I think, I think so, and it, it's a different model. I mean, the old model was a union works, like, uh, works its, its uh, organizers' butts off, uh, mobilizing uh, the workers to take an action, be that uh, organizing itself or getting ready for a strike or what have you, uh, and then conducts the negotiations and uh, seals the deal. Uh, in the new model, um, digital media like Facebook actually uh, either you know uh, uh, helps the union or exceeds what the union can do in mobilizing uh, the workers. And the union's role is more like that of, for lack of a better term, a closer. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, you do need structure. You do need a clear demand. Uh, The union provides that. But the work of mobilization, what we've seen in West Virginia and what we've seen in, what we're seeing in Oklahoma, uh, can go on in, in a number of ways in which the union itself need not really be central. Huh. So all of that really works, I think, uh, for workers who, like teachers, like you know, uh, professors, like tech workers, uh, are are not easily replaceable. In fact, in the last week, there have been some stories about uh, gamers, about you know, uh, basically the young men who devise you know uh, the online digital games, uh, you know, who, classic white male uh, libertarians uh, forming their own union, you know, uh, uh, you know, this is, this is the, uh, uh, and they're not, they're not easily replaceable either. Uh, so they, they have some power to do this. Young you know, I mean, it's for some time we've known that, you know, a really powerful union is like professional athletes unions, a screen actors guild, uh, you know, these are people who their employers can't replace. Uh, and as you know, there, there are a number of such employees in the United States who are, you know, less, they may not be as uh, unreplaceable as uh, Brad Pitt, but, uh, you know, it's they, they, still not easy to find a whole bunch of uh, young men or other uh, young women or not so young men or women uh, who can devise computer games or uh, teach, uh, teach at MIT. <laughs> So, uh, if you uh, if you yeah. if you've just tuned in, just want to re- remind our listeners we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. He's our go-to guy on young white male uh, libertarian gamers. Um, right. <laughs> uh, I, I'm still worrying about the Janus case, which is going to make 
uh, all all 50 states right to work states where uh, public employee unions can no longer uh, connect collect those fees for being for representing their uh, their members in negotiations with the with the uh, local and state governments. The state of Wisconsin, I believe, when the state of Wisconsin went right to work, uh, a huge number, maybe half of the I believe it was the teachers union members quit. Uh, they're going to get their negotiating for free, so why why pay dues? Is there something unions can do to uh, anticipate or prevent or recoup some of these losses which are likely to come? Well, yeah, but I want to clarify one other thing about Wisconsin. That wasn't all that Scott Walker did. The other thing he did was statutorily uh, say that the only thing unions could negotiate about were raises that went no higher than 1% a year. Uh. So, so uh, at that point, it, it really almost became a rational decision to leave the union yeah. unless you wanted to make a long-term investment that someday someone would come along and repeal all the nonsense that Scott Walker and the Republican legislature had enacted. Uh, so it wasn't just right to work. It was also really effectively curtailing any meaningful collective bargaining. Thank uh, you. At which, point, at which point, you know, belonging to a union does seem to be almost a bit of a gesture more than... Uh, anything else and a gesture that you know leads to dues payment so okay that that aside uh the unions uh, the public sector unions have been uh attempting to uh reach out to their own members and to people they represent in collective bargaining who aren't members uh for some time now in anticipation of uh of of the Janus decision going against them they're not the only one anticipating it though uh there are right wing groups that have already lined up canvassers to go to union public un- uh, employee union members doorsteps oh. and say hey why don't you uh why don't why don't you uh, uh get out of the union because you can get whatever you get out of the union for free without paying them anything and the fact that they're primed to do this right now gets to the other consequence of a, of a Janus decision uh you know if if this really didn't have effects on the electoral balance of power yeah i don't think you would see uh the the Koch brothers and others having lined up uh people to do what i what i just said uh but the fact is the the major public sector unions SEIU asked me and the two teachers unions uh, national education association and the american federation of teachers uh, are really uh, the linchpin of, of a lot of democratic and progressive political activity. No one really invests more in mobilizing minority voters and getting them to the polls uh, than these unions, uh, getting their own members to the polls. And also, since these unions are very large, uh, you know, they, they also support other progressive organizations. Uh, and, and so a lot of this is is driven by its potential electoral consequences tipping things towards the Republicans, you know, in, in much yes. the same way that this new uh, uh, rule uh, from the Census Bureau to uh, require uh, people to answer whether or not they're citizens on the census uh, is also intended to tip uh, the balance uh, of power more towards rural white areas where there are fewer immigrants and um, uh, hence benefit the Republicans. A lot of the stuff coming before the court, and I'm sure that case will reach the court at some point in the next six months because there's been, there's been a lawsuit brought by 
California Attorney General Javier Becerra and by a group of 12 other state attorneys general around the country. Um, a lot of a lot of this very partisan stuff is going to come before the court. Uh, Janice already is before the court. Uh, the constitutionality of gerrymandering is before the court. They just had another hearing on uh, uh, yesterday, uh, and uh, and uh, the, the, this uh, a new census rule will come before the court too. So you know, a lot of a lot of very partisan stuff is uh, is coming before the court. Uh, now for something different, Harold Meyerson. I, I wonder what you think of the. Uh, argument that Tom Frank makes in the new issue of Harper's Magazine that Trump could be reelected, assuming he doesn't get impeached and removed from office, um, if the economy continues to boom the way it's booming right now and employment continues to grow the way it's growing right now and wages he- head slightly upward. It's It's a historical fact that when Economic times are good when the economy is is booming. Incumbents get reelected, whoever they are. Uh, and Tom Frank says, "Well, this could happen to Trump because the economy is moving, uh, it, partly because of the tax cuts, uh, partly uh, for for other reasons. Um, the economy is booming and may continue to boom for another two years. I wonder what you think about this argument." Well, first of all, n- neither Tom Frank nor I uh, can be uh, have any certitude about what the economy is going to be like two years from now. Correct. Uh, you know, and and we have a global economy, so uh, certain calamities elsewhere eventually could uh, be felt here, as has been the case uh, in the past. It was the collapse of an Austrian bank in 1931, which really uh, started a spiral that, that brought down the whole industrial world, including us. Um, in at the depth of the the Great Depression, uh, but you know, I mean, uh, Tom Frank's argument cannot easily be dismissed. Uh, if the economy remains really robust, uh, that is obviously a factor in Trump's favor. I, I don't really think uh, that would necessarily deter uh, Democrats doing well this November. Right. Uh, right. I think. I think. Uh, midterm elections are, are based on turnout, and I think it's pretty. The evidence is pretty clear that the Democratic base and even parts of the electorate, which may not be the Democratic base, but are going to vote Democratic this time. A lot of suburban women, for instance, uh, are going to turn out at a higher rate than uh, than Republicans. Uh, as, but a presidential contest, it uh, could be. And now, but you know, um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand. We, we haven't had too many presidents like Trump, with as many negatives as he continually Correct. creates every damned hour. Correct. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, if, if the economy is booming while uh, Andrew Andrew Johnson or James Buchanan uh, <laughs> was president, would that have saved them? Probably not. Um, uh, you know, so so it, it, it's a little it's a little early to say, but there's no there's no question that a good economy helps Trump, uh, or or to generalize that. Uh, more, a good economy helps incumbents. And if he did even a little bit of of something uh, like infrastructure uh, funding, that could further spur uh, uh, employment and actually increase wages, maybe even. And if he did it in a few key states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, wouldn't he wouldn't even have to do all that much for wages to go up a little bit in some of the key uh, swing states. This is the anxiety that we're uh, that I've become newly aware of. 
that's true, but I mean, Trump's infrastructure proposal uh, uh, does profoundly zilch. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, so I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's in either his toolkit or the congressional Republicans' toolkit. They would have to uh, appropriate the funds, and they have no desire to, based on uh, what they've been saying. Uh, to actually create infrastructure, what Trump has is infrastructure rhetoric, not not infrastructure. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, he proposed uh, he only proposed uh, of the supposed 1.5 trillion. He's talking about only 200 billion of that comes from uh, the federal government. Uh, that that's his proposal, uh, and then there are so many cuts <coughs> in existing infrastructure programs that he also proposes that it kind of zeroes out. So um, I, I'm not too I'm not too concerned about Trump getting an infrastructure uh, uh, bump, as it were. But uh, I, I think if the economy uh, continues to get better, and you know the Federal Reserve may stomp on that at some point, so yeah. th- there's always that. Uh, since Janet Yellen is no longer uh, no longer there, and since she had a, a, some awareness that the the Federal Reserve should also pay some attention. To reducing unemployment, which is not the usual pattern at the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, there, but it, it, it's the state of the economy generally, not infrastructure, which I think needs needs careful watching. One more thing, anniversaries. There's Saturday. This Saturday happens to be the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Baines Johnson's speech announcing he would not run for re-election. This was a time when everybody thought. He was going to run. It does raise the question: Do you think Trump might conceivably do the same thing? Well, what we know about Trump is that uh, he has a, a phobia about losing, and if he's way down in the polls uh, in uh, the winter of 2019-2020, uh, he may well do the same. Uh, plus, which he ain't going to be a spring chicken. I think he'll be 74 then. Uh, so that's a that's a distinct possibility. And of course, what happened? I'm sure you remember was that the the immediate provocation, the immediate trigger uh, to LBJ pulling out of his own reelection campaign was the New Hampshire primary, which he nearly lost to that little known anti-war senator from my home state of Minnesota, Gene McCarthy. Gene McCarthy's victory spurred. Bobby Kennedy, the nemesis of LBJ, to enter the race just a couple of days later. Uh, already today, uh, there are a couple of Republicans talking about entering the New Hampshire primary in in 2020. Uh, there are indeed. Uh, uh, Jeff Flake and John Kasich have have are exploring the possibility of entering the New Hampshire primary. So those of us who remember 1968 are looking forward to 2020. Um, yes, well, um, I, I actually worked on the McCarthy campaign in between high school and college that year. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so you were, cl- I, you were, as we said, clean for Gene. Well, since I had only just graduated high school, I was clean to begin <laughs> you with. You were clean anyway. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, obviously I remember it well. I, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, when... Uh, uh, Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy entered the field. Um, they had, you know, they had a cause, yes. which a hell of a lot of Democrats identified with, which is getting us the hell out of Vietnam. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that there's a comparable number of Republicans 
who uh, would go against Trump. Uh, I think the party has become so debased, as it were, that uh, I'm not confident uh, that any Republican could uh, really damage Trump in the primaries. I think, but, you know, he's still polling at an 85% approval rating among Republicans. It's everybody else that he's getting clobbered by, which leads me, and that, that would be, I think, what would uh, uh, convince him uh, not to run for re-election. Harold Meyerson, he was clean before Gene in 1968. Right. <laughs> you could read him at the American Prospect website where he has a terrific new piece about what's next for union. That's at unions. That's at prospect.org. Harold, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, should Ivanka be indicted? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Katha Pollitt responds to the Russiagate skeptics. But first, it's time for Ivanka Talk on Trump Watch. Today, we ask the question, should the president's daughter be indicted? For that, we turn to our chief Ivanka correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Ivanka is connected either directly or tangentially to events at the heart of the Russiagate probe. Let's look at the arguments that she should be a target for the prosecutors. Where do you think is the strongest case that she may have committed a crime? Well, possibly it's the cover-up meeting on Air Force One after the fabled meeting in Trump Tower with the Russian lawyer, where on Air Force One the Trump team, including the president and Jared Kushner uh, and Ivanka, crafted a message to the media saying that it was a meeting largely about Russian adoptions and had nothing to do with Hillary Clinton when actually, as we have discovered, it was all about dishing dirt on the Clinton campaign. And uh, Ivanka was present at that meeting. She did tell Michael Wolff, the author of Fire and Fury, that she was there briefly and took a pill to go to sleep. <laughs> Which strikes me as too much honesty, you know? Yes. When do you find a person admitting that they took a pill to go to sleep in high office other than when they want to make an excuse for themselves to not have been present at a damning meeting, which is part of the cover-up that Mueller is studying? And then there was a another meeting where she did not take a pill to go to sleep. That was the one where they discussed firing... FBI Director James Comey. Yes, and she was very supportive of that idea. She was very worried, as was her husband, about Comey's taking a look at various Kushner companies' projects um, as that investigation wore on. And they were just all very frightened at the very beginning of this, and she wanted to get rid of him. That seems very much like 
being part of a conspiracy to obstruct justice if we believe that Comey was fired to stop him from investigating the president's crimes. Right, rather than being fired because he was too tough on Hillary and her emails, as Trump alleged, after his firing. Now, I guess we should say here, you know, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on the podcast. And there's a lot we don't know, but presumably Robert Mueller knows a lot that you and I do not know about right. all this. The fact that Ivanka has not yet been hauled up on charges doesn't mean she's not being closely studied. And I would not assume anything about Mueller's attention or lack of attention to the possible subjects at hand. The Intercept had a piece on whether Ivanka could be indicted by Hannah Seligson. She points to uh, Ivanka's connections to Felix Sater. Who is he again? Felix Sater is a Russian-American businessman uh, with reputed mob ties uh, who loudly and plausibly boasted of connections with senior Russian officials in Moscow. He is now considered to be one of the Trump Organization's biggest headaches in the Russia probe because of a letter that he wrote to Trump lawyer Michael Cohen in 2015. Here is what he said in that letter. Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage this process. Sounds sort of like collusion. Sounds just a touch like collusion there. And what does this have to do with Ivanka? Well, Ivanka accompanied Seder at one point to Moscow in, I think it was 2006, and uh, he claimed that he arranged for Ivanka to sit in Putin's chair at the Kremlin. And when the New York Times heard this, it asked, Ivanka, did you sit in Putin's chair at the Kremlin? She says, I may have sat in Putin's chair, but, quote, she did not recall it, unquote. I would remember if I sat in Putin's chair, John. <laughs> but but I don't think it's a crime to sit in Putin's no, chair. No, simply but... it shows that there is a relationship between Ivanka and Seder. The Moscow connection is at the heart of a lot of the whole Russia thing, you know, A lot of people think, we think, this all goes back to Trump's project of building a Trump hotel in Moscow, which he's been trying to do for many years, which accelerated a lot just in the last two years, and which was still going on during the campaign. A lot of people think this is the basis of Trump's, what should we call it, romance with Putin, a lot of which has been covered up and denied. And Ivanka is an important part of the project of building a Trump hotel in Moscow. So you know that Ivanka was one of the um, few members of the Trump organization who was tasked with going to foreign countries and figuring out sites, dealing with foreign governments on behalf of the Trump organization, real estate projects, and especially in the hotel and apartment tower business. And she went also to Moscow uh, on behalf of the Trump Organization, scouting for sites to build the Trump Tower Moscow. And they did find some sites. And this was to be done with uh, a Moscow bank that is closely tied to the Russian government. But because of the Obama sanctions against Russia, the deal couldn't go through. And it is thought that that is possibly part of why the sanctions became such a big conversation piece between the Russians who met with the Trump campaign 
in the walk-up to the election. And another potential vulnerability of Ivanka is her support of campaign chief Paul Manafort, who's now charged with conspiracy, money laundering, being an unregistered agent of a foreign entity and making false statements to the FBI. This is being pretty close to a person charged with multiple felonies. This one I'm a little, I think it's highly speculative. She supported Manafort. He was uh, someone they knew. He was someone who was considered an expert. Yes, now he's being charged, but you know, that doesn't mean she should be charged because she supported his role in the campaign. She also supported Michael Flynn's role in the campaign. He's now cooperating with the Russia probe. So I don't know if you can just tar her with the same brush. It's a little suspicious. We wonder what Mueller's looking at about her. And we wonder what Flynn might say. If Flynn says, well, everything I did was what Ivanka told me to do. Right, or what we discussed. So we've been talking about what Mueller might be investigating that could lead to criminal charges against Ivanka. Of course, there's a lot of reasons to think Ivanka is not guilty of anything. Let's look at some of those. What do you think are, you know, what do you think is the best reason that Ivanka is not uh, guilty of any crimes? This is her defense. She's not smart enough. She's a mommy. She's too busy with the kids. She only cares about women's issues, as if she were the first lady. That's how the defense of Ivanka goes. She's she's like a first lady. She has the kids. She has her women's projects, and she's just not involved. But if if that were the case, it would be completely other than how Ivanka has always represented herself in her books uh, as a fully viable member of the Trump organization, in fact, sometimes solely in charge of various projects. And I just don't buy the stupid Ivanka uh, theory at all. Uh, she may not be the world's greatest intellectual, but she is a woman who knows how to do business. So maybe it was stupid to recommend Manafort and Flynn for jobs, but it wasn't a crime. Uh, maybe she's just inexperienced and has poor judgment about public life, since really all she knows about is the Trump organization and the rules that the Trump organization follows are a little different from the rules that the White House should follow. But that doesn't work as, as a justification. First of all, ignorance is not a defense. And second of all, um, and when you look at Jared and Ivanka and how they've run themselves in the West Wing, especially Jared, but they're part of a team, these are people who came to the White House without the slightest notion of propriety and impropriety, without the slightest notion of observing a lack of violation of both the spirit and the letter of the law. That's not how they operate. They brought their business uh, behaviors into the White House. Jared doing business deals in his little office next to the bigger office down the hallway. And... Um, they went to the White House with this in mind. I think you're headed for a bigger point here about Jared and Ivanka. Well, it's something I've thought about a lot because I've studied the development of kleptocracies in other countries in the world, and this is how it works. People come in, they look like a little bit shady, and they seem a little bit different from the leaders who have preceded them, and then suddenly you realize they're using the office to do their own business. They're stealing from the American people. I mean, if you think it's not a, uh, a violation of propriety for Jared to go on taxpayers' dollar all over the world 
um, ostensibly pursuing our foreign policy, but in fact also pursuing his own uh, business goals, that's not true. And he is using uh, the the White House to establish ties, say, to Mohammed bin Salman um, in Saudi Arabia, to establish these ties for future use for his businesses so that when he does leave office, he will have uh, made connections to other kleptocrats across the world um, with whom he can do business. And this is a danger to the United States and to the Constitution. We used to say that Ivanka and Jared were moderating forces. Yeah. We wanted them in the Trump White House because they were social liberals. They were New Yorkers. And they indeed, were... they are social liberals. But so what? I don't want my social liberals uh, doing their business and sucking monies out of foreign uh, leaders in order to pursue their own ridiculous $1.8 billion mortgages downtown in Manhattan. It's just, it's it's a grotesque abuse of power. You know, so what if they think it's bad for Trump to uh, pursue gays or to support Nazis in the southern states of the United States or to kowtow to the NRA? I don't care what they feel. They're not doing any good in the first place. Are they stopping Trump from pursuing those goals? No, they're not. And nor do they think they will be. They just are are showing a nice face while they uh, while they suck money from the job. And Ivanka may be the mom of the Instagrammable Arabella, the cutest girl who's ever lived in the history of mankind, but she's also a shark, not Arabella, Ivanka. It's a grotesque abuse of power. This has been Ivanka Talk with Amy Willens, our chief Ivanka correspondent. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Katha Pollitt replies to the Russiagate skeptics. That's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening very quickly. But first, it's time for this week's Russiagate update. Today we turn to Katha Pollitt. She's been thinking about the arguments made by some of our friends on the left who are skeptics or deniers about the evidence that Russia attempted to interfere with the 2016 election in an effort to make Trump president. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, let's start with the headlines. House Intelligence Committee Republicans said that their investigation has concluded they found no evidence of collusion between Trump's presidential campaign and Russia to sway the 2016 election. Republicans said they agreed with American intelligence agencies that Russia had interfered, but they broke with the agencies on one 
crucial point. The Russians, they said, had not favored Trump's candidacy. This ends the investigation by the House Intel Committee. What do you say to that? No evidence of collusion. Well, you know, it's interesting because they didn't interview some very important people here. They didn't interview Manafort, Papadopoulos, Gates, all of whom are under indictment. Um, You'd think they might have something relevant to say. So this is just another example, John, of how the Republican Party has completely corrupted itself and is totally in the tank for Trump. Well, let's look at some of the other arguments made by Russiagate skeptics, including some of our colleagues at The Nation. One of the things they say is that focusing on Russiagate means neglecting more important things. Look at Rachel Maddow. Russiagate is pretty much all she talks about. Well, you know, she does seem a bit obsessed. I, I grant them that. But, you know, that is really a terrible argument because in life we often have to look at more than one thing at a time. And the idea that because Russiagate is consuming, uh, you know, a certain amount of attention and energy in political discourse means that we're not talking about other things, that's absurd. That's absurd. We are talking about a lot of things, and Russiagate is an important story. I mean, you'll notice nobody says, oh, my goodness, gun control is getting too much ink. Let's talk about something else. Me too, too much ink. Let's talk about something else. This is brought out to say Russiagate is trivial. But how do we know it's trivial before we know exactly what it was? I think people are leaping to conclusions here. Another thing we hear is that the reason Democrats are focusing on Russiagate is that they want to avoid talking about the real reasons they lost the election. It wasn't because of Russian interference. It was because of Hillary's campaign. And what we really need to look at is why people didn't vote for Hillary. That's the important thing. Well, I wish I had a penny for every article written about why Hillary's campaign was terrible. There has been no lack of that. Um, You know, it does seem to me that the Democratic Party is doing really well in special elections. Um, And that, to me, argues that a certain amount of energy has been spent by the Democratic Party in saying, you know, we've got to get over the election. We've got to understand what we did wrong. We have to run candidates that will appeal to people. Um, There's, you know, look at Virginia, New Jersey, Washington State. Look, even Alabama. So I would say this picture that the Democrats are uh, just obsessing with Russiagate and not looking to their own, to clean their own house, is, is not borne out by the facts. Another thing we hear is that, well, yeah, maybe Russian bots and trolls uh, did post on Facebook and did tweet, but those were really insignificant, hardly seen by anybody in the gigantic world of social media. Well, I don't know anything about analyzing social media, but Columbia University social media analyst Jonathan Albright argued that their organic reach, whatever that may be, I think that's forwards and RTs and all like that, uh, was actually huge, um, potentially billions of shares. But even if that's not true, even if the critics are right, the social media campaign was a flop, the more important thing 
that the Russians are alleged uh, on pretty strong evidence to have done was the mass release of emails from the DNC and John Podesta by WikiLeaks. That got a huge amount of attention, mass publicity for months and months and months. And that was what solidified the narrative that the primary was fixed, the Democrats are corrupt, Hillary and everyone around her are just horrible people and dishonest schemers. Um, and that set off Pizzagate. Remember Pizzagate? That I was mean, a big one. Uh, yeah, that was a big one. Completely different kind of argument that the skeptics offer. If Russia did meddle in our election, it's nothing that we haven't done to other countries for the last 50 years. That comes pretty close to admitting that they did meddle, which is the, which is the very thing they're supposed to be contesting. Um, but, you know, it's not as if the Russians interfered to avenge our overthrow of Mossadegh and Allende and many other, uh, other um, elected governments. They did it for their own purposes. And I don't see why the proper answer for leftists is that, oh, sure, here we are. Come, come interfere with our elections. We're bad. Um, that, that is not the answer. The answer is to say we shouldn't do it and they shouldn't do it either. Another argument that we get from the skeptics is that focusing on Russiagate won't win elections because voters, especially the voters who aren't already committed Democrats, care mostly about bread and butter issues. They care about health care, about raising the minimum wage, about free college. That's what will win votes for Democrats, and that's what we should all be talking about. Well, I think we are talking about those things. I think if you look at uh, uh, Connor Lamb, who's running... In, I mean, should I mention him, John, because he's, his election is today? But if you look at, look at all those people who ran in Virginia, for example, they didn't run on Russiagate. They ran on Trump is terrible. They ran on we need, a, you know, we need to uh, have a better highway system. They ran on all kinds of local issues, and, on, and, and uh, they got out the vote on the basis of, you know, of, of those issues and also on the basis of uh, – you know, Trump being a terrible president. They ran on the basis of the misogyny that has overtaken our government now. Um, uh, you know, Russiagate was not the big issue there. Russia isn't the, the, a big, uh, big issue in any of these, uh, these special elections we've been having. So I don't really understand where that comes in. Um, I think that, um, you know, these local candidates are, uh, you know, pretty... Uh, pretty much dealing with the issues that are on the table for everybody. Um, and some of them are talking a lot about health care and the other issues that Bernie Sanders has raised. Some of them are, some of them are Bernie Sanders people. Well, we're trying to find this out, but it doesn't help when the Republicans shut down their own investigation. But the Mueller investigation is, is coming right along. And, um, you know, like I say, I, I don't think we know yet. I, but I, what I don't like is dismissing this thing for reasons like um, I would rather we were all talking about health care or I don't like the FBI. One we've seen in the nation over the last few months is that this whole thing is a McCarthyite smear of the skeptics. What do you say to that? 
Well, you know, McCarthyite is such a funny word because, of course, there hasn't been a Soviet Union for a long time, and there isn't a Soviet Union involved in this case. Um, but I think it tries to trade that word tries to trade on the emotional resonance of a the politics of a bygone era. But you know, here's another thing: uh, under McCarthy, people who criticized our government were accused of being agents of a foreign power. They lost their jobs. A few of them went to jail. But today, McCarthyite is being used uh, against uh, to say we Russiagate skeptics are being demonized. But they're not. They're not. They're appearing on Tucker Carlson and CNN, like Ren Greenwald and some of my nation colleagues. Masha Gessen, who has argued against the importance of Russiagate from the beginning, is one of the most admired journalists in the country, and justly so. So I don't just look around at who is getting attention paid to their words and see, oh, these poor Russia skeptics, no one is listening to them. People are listening to them. They just don't agree with them. And they're not losing their jobs. And they're not losing their jobs. Um, they're doing very well. And they occupy an enormous amount of uh, quite a bit of, of media real estate, like The Intercept. You know, Masha is at The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books. Our, our magazine has five, count them, five Russia skeptics writing all the time. So I just don't see how McCarthyism has anything to do with this. Katha Pollitt, you can read her new column. It's called Let's Get Real About Russiagate at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. Uh, one more thing today before we have, have to say goodbye. What, what happened to Roseanne Barr? You know, she used to have a show here on KPFK, and now we've learned she's a Trump supporter. The new Roseanne show on uh, TV had 18 million viewers. Trump called her, him personally, after the show to congratulate her and talked about it at a rally that he did. Where was his rally? It was in, it was in Pennsylvania or Ohio or something. It was supposed to be a rally about... Uh, infrastructure, but he ended up, as usual, kind of rambling, and he talked about uh, Roseanne's TV show, and, and sa he said, look at Roseanne, look at her ratings. Um, Cleveland, this was at, out in Cleveland, it was supposed to be an infrastructure speech, but uh, he said her ratings were unbelievable, 18 million people, and it was about us, close quote. Uh, Roseanne uh, has been on uh, TV since then saying, yes, it's true. Trump called to congratulate me. She has been a Trump supporter for the last uh, year or two. Uh, her Twitter stream, which she has deleted, has been uh, apparently at the far end of Trump conspiracy uh, theorizing. I bet some of our listeners remember that Roseanne Barr had a show on KPFK in 2009 she did the Wednesday edition of Beneath the Surface. That was our daily 5 o'clock show uh, at, at that point. Different hosts every day. I was at 4 o'clock. I would leave this very studio where I'm sitting now. Roseanne and her sidekick, uh, a guy whose name I can't remember, would, would come in to do their show. She was a KPFKer in 2009. She was a, you know, a left-wing radical. Now she's a Trump supporter. What happened to Roseanne? 
Uh, I sure don't know. One last thing, your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul. Last Sunday was the March for Our Lives all over the country, and there was a march in St. Paul, a big one. 20,000 people marched on the state capitol uh, in support of stronger gun legislation. The amazing thing about the rally in St. Paul wasn't just the size. It was that the speakers at the rally included kids from that Parkland High School in Florida. What were they doing in St. Paul? This was the school hockey team who had gone to St. Paul for a national hockey tournament. And they took time out to go to the rally and give some tearful speeches about what happened at their school. Uh, There were also um, March for Our Lives rallies in Duluth, where hundreds of students marched through the cold from the old Central High School to downtown, where they lined up 17 pairs of sneakers on the City Hall steps to symbolize the 17 kids who'd been killed uh, at Partland. There were other March for Our Lives events in far north of Minnesota in Ely, which is the gateway to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, in Grand Rapids, and in Grand Marais, the last stop on the north shore of Lake Superior before you get to the Canadian border. Your Minnesota moment rallies against guns in the little towns of northern Minnesota. that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson, uh, gave us our political update focusing on unions and Trump. Amy Willens considered whether Ivanka should be indicted. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Our, th- our theme music is Rykooter's Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up next on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We'll be back next week at the same station at this same time with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.